Well, good evening, ABC College. Hope you all are doing well uh, on this Wednesday of uh, the first week of summer. Uh, We've mixed it up a little bit with our location. Uh, I'm up at the church now using our set that we use for our Sunday morning stuff. Uh, But we're starting a new uh, series, so I figured it'd be a fun time to to mix up our location. But hope you guys are doing well uh, here at the beginning of summer. Uh, Yet again, we just want to say that we... uh, we miss you guys so much. Uh, we love you, and we're praying for you uh, during this time. And uh, there's a lot of things going on, even with our college ministry during the summer. Uh, so be on the lookout for reminders about that. But for sake of time, I'm going to jump right into our new series tonight, and we'll remind you through GroupMe and text message about other stuff. Um, but like you've probably seen online, we are starting a new series this week that we're calling Core Essentials of Christian Theology. And I'm very excited uh, about this series. I think it's going to be a great thing for us. So without further ado, we're going to jump right into this uh, tonight. So let me ask you a question. Uh, Have you ever been asked, maybe by yourself or or maybe by somebody else, you know, one of those hard questions about your faith? You know, maybe a question like, you know, why do you really believe that the Bible is God's word, you know, compared to some other book? You know, how can you really believe in a God uh, that is supposed to be three beings or three persons in one being? You know, or how could Jesus be fully God and yet fully man all at the same time? You know, or even what happens when we die? Yeah, Jesus will come again. But even what happens right now um, in the kind of in between when we die? You know, what happens then? Those are hard questions in our faith. And honestly, I think in our culture today, They're questions that, while they're difficult, are questions that we need to be uh, prepared to answer. And that's part of why we're doing this study uh, this summer, that we're going to study theology and we're going to study doctrine. Now, theology would be the study of God and all things to do with God. Doctrine is really what the Bible has to say and what the Bible teaches about any specific uh, topic. So we're going to spend time this summer looking at what the Bible teaches really about the core elements of Christianity. You know, we're not going to cover everything, uh, but I think we're hopefully going to cover some of the most important stuff. And so really, I have two hopes here. Number one, if you're a Christian, I hope this study is an equipping time for you, that it's very encouraging, that it gives you more than some surface level answers to some difficult questions, but maybe gets you a little bit deeper into why you believe what you believe. But if you're a non-Christian watching this, I want to say first off, thank you for watching a video from a church on the internet. Uh, but I hope that this study is a way for you to maybe learn more about Christianity, maybe move past some of the cliches, move past some of the mis, you know, misinterpretations uh, and misinformation out there, and really learn what Christians believe. And my selfish hope is that you would come to believe in Jesus through this study. But that's my hopes for this. So, um, but we're going to go and get into this study tonight. And we're going to begin with what I think is probably the most important place to begin when it comes to theology, and that's the Bible. We're going to talk tonight about what is the Bible, and uh, can we trust it, and how do we get it? And we'll spend two weeks on this, most likely, and we'll move on from there. But as we're getting into this tonight, I do want to mention that I'm referencing a couple of books that may be helpful for you. They're pretty meaty, so you may not want to go out and buy these and read them. But just for sake of citing my sources, uh, I'm really referencing three things. I'm referencing a book called Doctrine by Mark Driscoll and Jerry Brashears. And I'm, I'm referencing two books, both called Systematic Theology, by Wayne Grudem and by John Frame. They're pretty meaty, 
they are huge, but they're great reference books. And so that's why I'm pulling some of this stuff from. But for tonight, we're talking about what is the Bible and where do we get it from? But first off, I want to ask you a question. Uh, have you heard about SETI before? S-E-T-I? It's an acronym in science. It, it stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And it's a $30 million scientific campaign where they've built these giant radio telescopes that have been searching space for signs of life, kind of like a, a giant space microphone, you can imagine. And they've been doing this for years. Uh, but here's the question. Why do we do this kind of stuff? You know, well, I think it's because we're searching for a voice from beyond. You know, we're, some, we're searching for something bigger than us. You know, maybe something that can make sense of life and make sense of our place in the universe. But to be honest, if we really want to hear the voice of something bigger and something that can make sense of our life, honestly, the answer is found a lot closer than we think. It's found in the Bible. And that's why tonight we're going to start by talking about the Bible. The Bible is what all of our theology and all of our doctrine is built upon. And first, even as we talk about the Bible, we need to consider really something even bigger than that or more general than that. It's the idea of God revealing himself to us, what we'd call in theology, revelation. And there's two kinds of revelation. There's general revelation and there's special revelation. A definition for you for general revelation is this. General revelation is God revealing certain aspects of himself to everyone everywhere. And we can explain general revelation really in three ways. In creation, in common grace, and in conscience. Consider creation for a second. Psalm 19.1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1.19-20, Paul says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So we see in those verses this, is that through the wonder of creation, that really every person can catch a glimpse of the existence and the majesty of God. You know, things like looking up at the night sky or even kind of meditating on, you know, the insane miracle that is the human body. And me and my wife just had a baby and the insane just miracle of even like a baby being born and all that goes along with that, with the baby developing in the mother. It leads you to believe and maybe to at least ponder that there has to be some kind of higher power, something bigger than us that's overseeing us, that has created us. That's the idea of you know, seeing God through general revelation and creation. But what about common grace? What I, mean by, what I mean by common grace? Well, common grace is the grace and kindness that God shows to all people, including nonbelievers, even though we don't deserve it. And because of sin, all of us only deserve God's wrath. But yet he shows grace to all people, it's called common you know, by allowing us to enjoy things, you know, that we have in the world. So many things we have in the world, things like, you know, life, things like nature, the beauty of creation, you know, flourishing in human society, even just a good meal or coffee. <laughs> Those are all things that are common grace that God gives to all people to enjoy, no matter their relationship to him. That God wants us, he wants to use the experiences and the goodness of life as a way to communicate his existence to us. But also there's conscience. You know, God has given every person an inner compass to discern right from wrong. You know, you don't have to very often convince someone that murder is wrong, that stealing or lying is wrong, because God has written morality on our hearts. 
You know, while some people may suppress and ignore their conscience, the existence of this internal code, it really reveals God's character as being holy and as being just. So much that C.S. Lewis actually used this idea of morality as really one way to argue the existence of God. That if we all have this internal moral code, you know, then where did that higher standard come from than some higher being that would set that standard? So that's even conscious. But overall, the idea of general revelation means that every person has a general internal awareness of God, which is why Paul would say in Romans 1 that in our sin, we suppress the truth. We suppress this knowledge of God in our hearts, and therefore we're without excuse for our sin, that we deserve God's wrath. So essentially, we all on our own have enough knowledge of God to condemn us, but not enough knowledge of God to save us. And that's where the second part of Revelation comes in. It's special revelation. The kind of revelation that allows us to know the good news of Christ and to be brought back to God. There's your definition there is that it's God revealing himself to us, specifically in how we can be saved from our sin and be brought back into a right relationship with him. Because here's the amazing thing. God has not left us on our own. God has not abandoned us and kind of set the world in motion and step back. But God has chosen to make himself known to us. The God of eternity, the God that created everything, has chosen to make himself known. It's amazing. And he's most fully revealed himself to us through the incarnation, you know, where God took on flesh and walked among us so we could fully see God in a way that's accessible to us. But God continues to reveal himself even today through the Bible because the, the Bible is the divinely inspired without error an authoritative word of God that reveals us, reveals God to us. It's the only way we can truly know God in the way that he would desire us to. So if we wanna hear God speak, then we need to read the Bible. The Bible is the highest form of authority for Christians. It's what Christians use to test everything else we hear about God. Well, that leads to the question, then what is the Bible? I'm glad you asked. We're gonna, we're gonna answer a lot of questions tonight. But the Bible really is a lot of things, but the Bible is God speaking his truth to us in human words. Really, even that word Bible comes from the word Greek for book. So to say holy Bible really means to say holy book. And the Bible itself was written in three languages. It was written Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek over a period of about 1,500 years uh, by more than 40 authors on three different continents. It's pretty amazing. And the Bible has 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And don't let the, old, the word Old Testament fool you. It's not old and irrelevant. You know, it, just re, it recounts the time of God creating the world all the way up to about 450 BC, a few generations before Jesus. So it gets called old because of the kind of back before Christ. And then the New Testament is the account of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the instructions that God gives to churches on how they should live in light of what Christ has done. That's the New Testament. So really, the Bible is a library of books all telling one big story. If you want to kind of simplify it, you can think of the Old Testament as promises God makes and the New Testament as God fulfilling those promises in Christ. And also, it seems obvious to say, but the Bible is a book. It's obvious, but it is. It's a book. You know, the Old Testament was written on papyrus, ancient paper. New Testament was written on papyrus and parchment and dried animal skin. You know, but the pages of the original Bible were in scrolls, right? But these days, most of us read a Bible 
in a, in a book form, printed book form, or honestly, we scroll through on our phone, but you know, all of us probably have at least some kind of paper Bible that we read every now and then. But our Bibles today have books and chapters and verses, right? But many people don't really know where those came from. But it's important to know that those references, obviously they're, they're there you know, to be almost like an address to be able to look up specific parts of the Bible. But chapters weren't added to the Bible until about the 13th century. And then verses weren't added to the Bible until about the 16th century when a Protestant book printer was fleeing his hometown because he was being condemned as a heretic. And while he's riding away from his hometown and on his journey on horseback, he begins to make kind of arbitrary, if we're honest, verse divisions of what would be one verse, verse one, verse two, verse three. And rumor has it is that sometimes he hit a bump while riding his horse and accidentally write the verse in the wrong spot, which is probably why we have really random verse breakdowns today. You know, but that system of verses and chapters was what got used in the first English Bibles, and it's what we have today. So the point of all that is to say that chapters and verses in the Bible are honestly kind of arbitrary. They don't have a very logical method sometimes for being broken down, and so they're not authoritative. So we don't need to use chapters and verses as a way to ignore the bigger context of the Bible, but instead we want to be careful to interpret the Bible well by looking at the immediate and overall context. We don't want to isolate a verse or just a a chapter and ignore everything around it because these are books we're talking about, not little tweetable phrases. You get into a lot of trouble interpreting the Bible that way if you do it that way. The Bible is a book, but also the Bible is a story and Jesus is the hero of that story. Think about the story of the Bible. The opening of the Bible introduces us to God. And then throughout the Bible, this God is revealed to us you know, more and more. And by the end of the New Testament, we see that the true hero of the Bible is God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And every story between the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible really is a smaller story weaving into a tapestry of the grand story God is painting as he comes to save us in Christ. You may have heard of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a great kid's Bible uh, that Colby, one of our pastors, or our pastor, uh, loves to reference. And I have one too. I'm actually going to use it to read to our son starting soon when he's a little bit older. (laughs) He can remember more things. Uh, But I love the Jesus Storybook Bible because even though it's written for kids, it really applies so well to adults. And the kind of subtitle of that Storybook Bible is that every story whispers his name that every story in the Bible whispers the name of Jesus. And Jesus agrees with this. He he said in John 5 that the scriptures, which at the time would only mean the Old Testament, bear witness to him, that even the Old Testament bears witness to him. So that means that all the Bible, both New and Old Testament, connects us to Jesus. So if we want to interpret the Bible rightly, we have to look at every verse through the lens of Christ's. Now, even consider just for a minute how the Old Testament sets the stage for Jesus and how really all the Bible, old and new, is pointing toward Christ. I'll give you four different ways to think about it, how the Old Testament sets the stage for Christ. It does it through promises, appearances, types, and titles. Promises. Well, at the time of its writing, you know, over a quarter of the Old Testament was prophetic. It was looking forward to future events. And the Old Testament has hundreds of now fulfilled prophecies spanning thousands of years into the future. And that shows God's sovereignty, his foreknowledge in all things, controlling and guiding time. But also consider the appearances in the Old Testament. There are appearances of God in the Old Testament in physical form, which 
they, were, they very well may have been Jesus in the Old Testament, revealing himself in physical form. And sometimes we call those Christophanies in theology. But there's lots of examples of these. Uh, think about Abraham walking with God in Genesis 18. It's about God wrestling with Jacob in Genesis 32. God appearing to Moses in Exodus 3. And then God, or at least an angel of the Lord, joining Daniel in the fiery furnace in Daniel 3. These are all potential uh, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. There's also the instances where an angel of the Lord, who sometimes gets identified as God, appears. Like whenever an angel of the Lord provides a sacrifice to replace Isaac's sacrifice, or Isaac himself as a sacrifice, in Genesis 16. So we have all these potential appearances of Jesus even in the Old Testament, but also there's the types in the Old Testament. There are you know, people, institutions, and events all throughout the Old Testament that foreshadow Jesus. I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, consider Adam as a representative for all mankind, just as now Jesus is the second Adam who stands as a representative for all mankind to bear the punishment of our sin and to grant us salvation. Consider even the priesthood in the Old Testament, you know, where a man would intercede on behalf of the people, and now Jesus is our great high priest. The kings of the Old Testament who ruled over people, they foreshadowed Jesus being the perfect king of kings. Moses and the prophets who spoke God's word to the people, they foreshadowed Jesus as the ultimate prophet revealing God to us. The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, they pointed Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. The temple where God, you know, dwells with the people in a specific way, that foreshadows Christ as God's true dwelling place among us. And then there are so many people specifically in the Old Testament that foreshadow what Jesus would come to do. We could spend a long time on this, but consider Jesus being the better Adam who actually passes the test in the garden and doesn't fail it like Adam did. Jesus is the better Abel, who though he was innocent, was slain and whose blood cries out for us. Jesus is the better Abraham who left his home in obedience to God. And we could go on and on and on with that, but we see over and over again how Jesus is better. He's the fulfillment of so many things in the Old Testament because the the Bible is one big story with Jesus as the centerpiece. But the fourth thing is titles, titles in the Old Testament. Old Testament's full of titles that point to Jesus being God. Consider Daniel 7. God is called the Son of Man. And in the Gospels, Jesus adopts that title, the Son of Man, as his favorite title for himself. In Isaiah, Jesus is called the Suffering Servant. And he's prophesied that way in Isaiah, and that's fulfilled when Jesus comes and dies for us. And there's dozens more of these titles we even could look at. But the point is this. The central message of the Bible is Jesus, not us. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. And this is important because if we miss Jesus as the hero of the story, it's really easy for us to try to make ourselves the hero instead. What do I mean by that? I mean that we can use the Bible just as a way to try to live a better life, you know, by looking at the good examples in the Bible and the bad examples in the Bible. And there's lots of examples to learn from in the Bible, but that's not the overall point of the Bible. It's not Aesop's fables. But the Bible is meant to point us to faith and salvation in Christ more than anything else. So we have to get that right and remember who the main hero of the Bible is. Another question is, well, who wrote the Bible? Well, it's a complicated answer, but uh, first off, the Bible has human authors, but it has one divine author. The Bible was written over thousands of years 
by all kinds of people in all kinds of literature throughout time. But it's important to remember this. The Bible wasn't co-authored by God and man, like two people kind of join together and co-author a book. It's not how it happened. The Bible wasn't dictated to someone by God, you know, like Muslims would claim the Quran was dictated. The Bible is not human writings that you know, become divine whenever people discover spiritual meaning in them. That'd be some Eastern religions would claim that. That's not how the Bible works. But we got the Bible when people who were prepared, motivated, and guided by God spoke and wrote according to their own personalities and circumstances in such a way that their words are the words of God. That's, that's a big definition, so let me kind of unpack that. But we call this divine inspiration. We sometimes say that the writings of the Bible are God-breathed. So it wasn't the authors and it wasn't the process that was inspired, but the writings themselves are inspired in the Bible. And more technically, sometimes we call this in theology, verbal plenary inspiration. It's verbal because it's the very words of the Bible. Every word matters, not just the thoughts, but the words. It's plenary because it means that every part is inspired not just the parts that we like. You know, we're not like Thomas Jefferson, who famously sat in the White House you know, with a razor in one hand and a Bible in the other and cut out the parts he didn't like. That's not the way we look at the Bible. That's not the way we can treat the Bible. But the authors of the Bible were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write and speak what they did. You know, just like a boat is carried by the wind you know, that fills its sails. They were carried along and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it means that the Bible is God's very word to us, and it means that we need to treasure it as what it is. It's God's very word spoken to us. So that's the Bible being inspired. But then what about this word that gets thrown around sometimes, the canon of Scripture? Well, let me give you a definition. The canon of Scripture is the collection of books that the church has recognized as having divine authority in matters of faith and doctrine. We get the word canon from the Greek word that means measuring rod. You know, the canon of the Bible is the authority by which other claims are measured. So to call the books of the Bible canon is to say that they have divine authority. And the canon of the Bible that we have are the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. But the question is, how do we get the books that we have in the Bible? How do we get the 39 and 27 books? You know, did God shout out from heaven to some people at one point in history, like, hey, this is the books you're gonna put in the Bible, and that was it? Well, no, that's, that's not the way it worked. But instead, over time, the church recognized the divine inspiration of the books of the Bible we have today, and eventually they agreed on what parts should be in the canon. So it was a process. It wasn't a vote that they took at one point, hey, this is going to be the books in the Bible, but it was a, it was a developing process that was eventually agreed upon. You know, so it's important to remember that the church councils that happened years ago to determine what the canon was, they weren't deciding what the canon was with authority saying, hey, churches, this is now what you're going to have in your Bible. But instead, they were simply agreeing with what every other church for the most part was saying is, is the Bible. They weren't imposing anything new on anybody. You know, because if you think about the Old Testament, New Testament, the Old Testament, much of that for Christians was received from Judaism. It was received from the Jews. You know, Christians followed in the line of Jesus's, you know, observance of receiving the Old Testament as authoritative in its Hebrew form. You know, but over time, here's what happened, because we know in terms of world history, over time, you know, Greek kind of becomes more common to speak in that area. 
And over time, more Greek speakers become Christians. And what happens is this, is that there's a Greek translation of the Bible that gets translated actually before Jesus came around called the Septuagint. And for whatever reason, the committee that did the Septuagint, you know, they thought it'd be good to rearrange some of the Old Testament books, and then they added some extra books. And over time, as more Greek speakers became Christians, you know, people kind of, you know, obviously became more interested in the Septuagint because they could read Greek, they couldn't read Hebrew. So they began to ask the question, hey, should we consider these other books in the Old Testament as authoritative, the ones in the Septuagint? Well, over time, the Roman Catholic Church eventually said, yeah, yeah, we're going to recognize those as authoritative. They added them to their Latin Bible, which they called the Vulgate. But when the Reformation happened, the Reformers, they rejected these books, these what they would call apocryphal books, and they went back to the original Hebrew Old Testament books and the Hebrew Old Testament order, which honestly lines up with what the early church would have observed and, and believed and used. So that's how the Old Testament kind of came to be. Uh, but in terms of New Testament, really the early church, they pretty much immediately recognized many of the books that we have today in the New Testament as being divinely inspired. You know, all the gospels, many of Paul's letters, the early church had no problem saying, yeah, this is like divinely inspired by God. We need to collect these and call this something very special. There were a couple of books like Hebrews, James, Second Peter, Second John, Third John, and Jude that they weren't initially accepted for a variety of reasons. But over time, the church agreed on those writings. Uh, there were also a few other writings of apostolic fathers that sometimes got called canon, but over time, those kind of made their way out too. We'll talk a little bit more about those uh, next week. But what happened is this. In the fourth century, the church finally decided that it was time to settle this issue of what is the canon. So in the East, this canon issue was determined by a list mentioned in a letter by a guy named Athanasius. He was a church leader, highly respected. He made a list of the canon in the church in the East. said, you know, we like, we like this list a lot. This, this is it. We're calling this the canon. But in the West, the canon was fixed at a meeting called the Council of Carthage in 397 AD. And at that meeting, there was little dispute on what books should be called canon at that point. Because like we said, the church for a while at that point already agreed on what the canon really was. The church was not imposing this on anybody. This really... Council of Carthage just affirmed what had already been accepted. And J.I. Packer, a pastor uh, who just passed away not too long ago, but um, he has a fantastic quote I love about this idea. He says, the church no more gave us the New Testament than Sir Isaac Newton gave us gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation. And similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. I, I love that. Um, but the question is, though, you know, even looking at the canon, how did the church know which books to recognize as authoritative? You know, what was their criteria? Well, there were three ones. There was conformity. There was, uh, this is a hard word, apostolicity and catholicity. Uh, in terms of conformity, uh, conformity, the question was this. You know, did the book that we're considering for the canon, did it conform to Christian truth recognized as normal in the churches? Did it, did it teach good theology and doctrine? If so, check. Then apostolicity. Uh, the question there was, was the writer an apostle? Were they directly taught by Jesus and sent out by Jesus? Or did they at least have immediate contact with an apostle? That really kind of ruled out a lot of books and made it easier in that way. The third thing was catholicity. 
you know, did the book have widespread acceptance in all the churches? So that's kind of the three things they used. And honestly, if you look at church history and see the way that the Old and New Testament, especially the New Testament, came to be as canon, it's really a miracle in and of itself to see so many people in such diverse places all agree on what is God's word and what you know, might be helpful is supplementary you know, and is not God's word and to discern that. It really is amazing. I highly encourage you to go online and even look up a little bit of history. It's a pretty incredible thing. But with that, we're going to stop there tonight. We'll continue this conversation about the Bible next week, and we'll answer some questions like this. You know, why are there some books that didn't make it into the Bible? Uh, are there errors and contradictions in the Bible? You know, can I trust the Bible as God's word? You know, why is the Bible authoritative? Why is the Bible sufficient? You know, what about different translations of the Bible? Why are, why are they there? You know, how can I best interpret the Bible? And then how should my view of the Bible affect my life. So we'll answer all those questions next week on week two of our study. But as we wrap up, I want to say this. Maybe this brought some questions to mind tonight as I was walking through some things. I'd love to hear your questions and be able to answer some of those next week. So if you'll text the number that's on the screen sometime between now and next week, really by next Monday will be good so I can get to it. I'd love to try to answer some of your questions next week about the Bible and about this stuff that I've talked about tonight. Uh, But with that, we're gonna be done tonight. I wanna pray for us and then hope you guys have a great rest of the week and we'll hopefully see you at table groups on Sunday morning. But let me pray for you and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for your word and how you have chosen to reveal yourself to us that we didn't deserve it. There's nothing about us, nothing about us being lovable enough to where you pursued us um, because of that. But Lord, simply you pursued us out of your own love and your own goodness and character. Lord, we thank you that you have pursued us, that you've revealed yourself to us, even specifically through Christ, him coming and being God uh, with skin on, being God that we can uh, see in a much more accessible way. And then the good news of Christ coming and dying in our place so we can be saved and brought back to you. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your word as a way to know you, to know the gospel. I pray that we would not take your word for granted. I know in our culture, it's so easy to take it lightly, but I pray, Lord, that even tonight, this could be an encouragement for us to treasure your word even more, to see it as the miracle that it is in our hands, and that we would seek to learn it, to meditate on it, to study it, to memorize it, and just, Lord, to get it into our hearts so that we can be transformed more into the image of Christ. Lord, we thank you for, for tonight. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, have a great week.